You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. I'm James Whitmore and it's Sunday the 22nd of November. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is broadcast and created on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In today's show we're going to be heading south, way south, to the icy waters around Antarctica. We're going to be hearing about a group of women campaigning for a new ocean reserve on the Antarctic Peninsula. We'll be right back after this announcement. Get lost! In science! Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. The Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest changing environments on the planet. Not only is it warming up rapidly, but it's seeing increasing numbers of tourists and scientists and increasing fishing pressure. It's also home to large numbers of penguins, seals and other Antarctic wildlife. Recently, a group of female scientists wrote a letter in the journal Nature calling to have the ocean around the peninsula protected. But at the latest international meeting in Hobart, that proposal was knocked back. I spoke to Dr. Carolyn Hogg, one of the women behind the letter, about why the peninsula's oceans need protecting. She's a senior research manager at the University of Sydney. Carolyn, thanks for joining us on Out of the Blue. Thanks so much for having me, James. So, Carolyn, the latest uh, international meeting on Antarctica didn't agree to form a marine protected area on the Antarctic Peninsula. What do you make of this? It's not wholly unexpected. Um, as you can imagine, you know, having a treaty where 25 nations and the European Union all need to have consensus and agreement makes it quite problematic to, uh, to get an agreement from a protected area. Uh, so our hope is that over the next 12 months with some negotiation, we might be able to get it over the line in 2021. Great. So you were one of the authors on a a letter that appeared in Nature calling for a marine protected area on the Antarctic Peninsula. Can you just tell us why that's necessary? Well, the Antarctic Peninsula, um, there's actually put forward to CAMELA, which is the Convention of... um, for marine Antarctic living resources. There's actually three marine protected areas um, that have been posted, one in the Antarctic Peninsula and the other one is in eastern Antarctica and also in the Weddell Sea. But we wrote the letter to Nature for the Antarctic Peninsula marine protected area because this is actually the area that's under subject to the most cumulative number of threats. So there's commercial fishing happening in the area, there's also tourist vessels going to the area, as well as a large number of research stations. And on top of all that, it's also the area that has the highest number of, um, sorry, the highest rate of warming of anywhere else in the Antarctic region. 
Yeah, I noticed um, earlier this year it recorded 20 degrees, which sounds extraordinary for Antarctica. Yes, no, that is. It was, it was typical. It was declared as a heat wave, I believe, um, in February 2020. And, yes, yeah, so unfortunately the Antarctic Peninsula region has been warming for quite a large significant number of years and what that warming is doing is it's causing the glaciers to collapse into the ocean increasing sea levels but it's also uh, causing the sea ice uh, thickness and extent not to grow out as far in the winter months which is really important for the krill which uh, basically form the basis of the southern ocean ecosystem and can you tell us a little bit about the fishing impacts around the peninsula yeah so krill uh, is found most of the world's krill, so about 70% of the world's Antarctic krill is actually found in the Antarctic Peninsula region. And about 90% of all the krill fishery in the Southern Ocean occurs in the region as well. So you've got the largest portion of the fishery happening in the area where you find most of the krill, which kind of makes sense from a fishing perspective. But from another perspective, it's not too good for the krill because as you can imagine, this is the area in which they reproduce and they grow. And so krill uh, grows underneath, uh, uses the sea ice extent during part of its larval stage and so as the sea ice is not as thick and as extensive as it used to be because of climate change and also with a very large amount of krill fishery happening in that area you can see it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And uh, fishermen aren't the only um, people in the area they're also researchers and tourists can you tell us a bit about the impact of those two activities? So um, the Antarctic Peninsula actually houses some of the, the largest concentration of research stations um, of any part of Antarctica, and that's because the Antarctic Peninsula historically has been claimed under um, the Antarctic Treaty System by both Chile, Argentina and Great Britain. And so these research stations are, tend to be built on areas where there's ice-free land. And so, you know, you can imagine with a research station comes researchers, there's fuel brought in to be able to run generators, so there's power and electricity. And so that starts to have quite a significant impact through the research footprint. And then on top of that, you also have um, tourist vessels now going down to the Antarctic Peninsula, and those numbers have increased significantly in the last 10 to 15 years with the, tour, um, the cruise ship industry. And so those are actually um, a large number of vessels that go down there with tourists at the moment uh, sign up to our IATO, which is a organisation which provides some pretty strong guidelines around how tourists should uh, be visiting the Antarctic region, but not all vessels going down there are actually signatories or members of IATO. So there's also a large proportion of ships which we know are going down there now that are not members or, or adhering to the guidelines. And what the IATO guidelines do is they say that there should only be you know 100 people from per vessel going on shore at any one time, that you can only visit a certain number of sites in any given day. But of course, those when people do landings in Antarctica, they're also going on shore, which are a lot of ice-free areas. And when I keep saying ice-free areas, people might wonder why that's important. Well, penguins in particular need ice-free areas in order to breed. And so there you start having a bit of an impact between the research stations, the tourists, and the penguins that need that ice-free space. So this uh, call for a marine protected area, it grew out of a program called Homeward Bound. Can you just tell us about what that program is? 
So Homeward Bound is a Women in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, medicine and maths uh, program, which is designed to help women increase their visibility um, and strategy development and leadership skills. And it's a program that goes for 12 months of the year and then culminates in a three-week uh, voyage to Antarctica. So, of course, you know, those women as well who participate in that voyage, there's about 80 to 100 women per year that go down. Um, and I was part of Homeward Bound 4, which was the largest ever a female cohort to go down with 113 women on board last year. So obviously we're also having an impact. So one of the ways that we helped reduce the impact of us going down to the Antarctic site was to uh, make sure we offset all the carbon that was used in flying to get to Ushuaia, as well as us taking the vessel down to the Antarctic Peninsula. And one of the key reasons the program takes women down to Antarctica is to kind of take you out of your comfort zone for three weeks. You're pretty much cut off from the rest of the world and all you know in your life, um, to really reflect on, on how we are going to address some of the largest and most significant um, impacts of climate change that are having on our planet. And, and I can say, having been down there, it's an awe-inspiring area, but it's also very humbling to see the impact that humans are having in such far reaches of the world. And so we're not calling for a you know cessation of all tourists going to Antarctica or stop fishing or stop having research stations. All we, we were asking for in, in the letter that we wrote in Nature was pretty much to say that we need to start capping the number of people going down to Antarctica and the research stations and the fishery because all those uh, factors are going to start accumulating quite quickly and we're going to hit a tipping point particularly for krill in the region that we're not going to be able to come back from i'm mm. um, thinking of this program homeward bound why is it important to have programs like this that are for women one thing that we've been showing is all evidence is pointing to is that the more diversity you have in leadership uh, the greater productivity and the greater increase in new ideas and different solutions moving forward uh, by having that diversity. And historically, women uh, haven't been uh, able to uh, have the skill set to allow them to facilitate reaching those kind of high-level leadership positions. And that's particularly important in, in STEM and, or in the sciences at a global and engineering at a global level. They've historically been very male-dominated fields. And so if we want to come up with different and novel solutions for how to deal with the biodiversity crisis and climate change that's happening at a global scale, then we really need to help women who can bring alternative solutions and leadership to the table and, and upskill them as quickly as possible. Was this your first journey to Antarctica? Yes, it was. I know um, it was the first time that I'd ever been down there. Wow. Um, what, what was it like? Because uh, I understand you're, you have a background in ecology. What was it like, uh, you know, seeing this place that so few people get to see? It's, um, it's very humbling to suddenly realise how small and insignificant you are. And one of the hardest things when you're down there is actually to judge scale and size. So, you know, when we're out in the bush here in Australia or anywhere else in the world, you can judge size by the trees that you see or the buildings that you see around or vehicles, all those kinds of things. But in Antarctica, because it's so isolated and there's hardly anything there, it's really hard to judge the size of the cliff spaces and the icebergs until you perhaps see another vessel um, or a ship nearby and you can actually then see how just in, ginormous it really is and the thing that struck me most down there is how the ice seems to breathe mm. so you know there were a couple of days where we just sat silently 
in in boat anchored offshore and you can hear the ice the the bubbles coming out of the ice as the ice melts and changes and moves through the landscape and and so it really seems can seem very desolate and isolated but is really quite alive all at the same time fantastic carolyn thanks for joining us on out of the blue all right thanks so much for having me that was dr carolyn hogg talking about the antarctic peninsula and the homeward bound program for women in stem After the break, we're going to be talking about some mysterious and very, very endangered fish. But first, here's a song. This is Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Don't Give Up On Me. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CA.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. And that was Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Don't Give Up On Me. There are thought to be fewer than 100 red handfish left in the wild, living on a few small rocky reefs off the southeast coast of Tasmania. Like many endangered species, it's loss of habitat that's driving their decline, pollution and sea urchins eating the seaweed they like to live amongst. But just a couple of weeks ago, a group of scientists did something amazing. They reintroduced 42 red handfish back into the wild. It's the first time they've ever been bred in captivity, and during a pandemic too, not bad. To find out how they're doing, I spoke to Dr. Jemina Stewart-Smith, the lead researcher on the project from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science at UTAS and the CSIRO. Jemina, thanks so much for joining us on Out of the Blue. Thanks for having me, James. Good to be here. So can you tell us about this uh, handfish release? It sounds like quite good news. Yeah, absolutely. So recently, a few weeks ago, we released 42 critically endangered red handfish juveniles, that, and they were sort of they were raised in captivity at IMAS, the CSIRO and Seahorse World. Um, so they've since been returned to the wild, and they were the idea behind it is um, is that we were undertaking a conservation strategy known as head starting. So head starting is where you grow the young, you keep them in captivity where they're protected from things like predators and other adverse environmental conditions. And that sort of means that more will survive those early, you know, vulnerable life stages than would, uh, than would otherwise in the wild. So then returning them to the wild helps bolster that wild population and also gives them gives more a chance of reaching maturity. And has, this, has a release of this size ever been done before? It's never been done with red handfish before. We've never actually kept them in captivity like this before. So it really was a milestone event. And we've been really sort of, we're really quite happy with the result because not only did we have so many to release, so so many survived in captivity, but we've also done some resurveys of those sites and found that the juveniles are still around and they're behaving like um, like <laughs> handfish are supposed to. So being able to recite them in the wild was quite a significant point because of that, that allowed us to inform the process or the conservation strategy and, and demonstrated to us that it was a feasible and, and effective technique in combination with that habitat management, you know, keeping urchins under control and that both of those things were really critical for the species survival. Because that's the problem with a lot of these conservation strategies is that you often you're still kind of in this learning stage and you release whatever animals that you, you're dealing with and often they're not sort of they're not able to survive in the wild because they're not well prepared or it's quite a stressful thing for them to go through and a, a large portion of them will usually often not make it through those first few days and we've been back for over a week now and are still re-seeing or reciting our individuals which is a really great sign for the long-term recovery of the species. Do we know how long handfish live? No, we think that spotted handfish live sort of around eight to ten years. The red handfish are a little bit smaller. The adults are only on average seven or eight centimetres, so we'd expect them to live um, less. So we're thinking maybe six or seven years, but we really don't have those answers. We don't know at what, at what age they start breeding um, and how many years they can lay eggs for. So there are lots of unknowns unknowns with the species yes um and, and do we know anything about you know how they move around do they are they do they stay in a particular territory or we don't know for red handfish we know that 
the red hamfish are really sort of they're limited to their habitat. I mean, they like rocky reefs and they live in these um, quite unique little areas. But spotted handfish, um, the, there have been some movement studies with spotted handfish and some of them are only moving 10 to 20 metres per <laughs> year kind of thing. They're not really active species like that. But with the red handfish, the the actual area that they're in, because they're sort of, they have a sand edge on one side, which they don't really move into much, and, and urchin barrens on either side of the actual main populations, they don't have very big areas to move within air, in any way, but they also don't swim very much. I mean, they, you know, they use their hands to walk around, their fins to work, walk around on, and, and they just don't move big distances, it appears. So how do they, how do they feed? Um, they're, they're sort of ambush predators, so they sit and wait for food to come in front of them, so they're kind of lazy feeders almost. Um, and they just sit still and wait for something to move right in, in front of them and take that. I have, we did, in part of the conditioning work that we did, we trialled some different food types just to make sure that they, you know, could feed on a different variety of things. And some of them were sort of moving towards crabs that we'd introduced to tanks, but they really, they're not that active. Um, they don't appear to be. So what are some of the challenges with raising these types of fish in captivity? Oh, there's a whole suite of challenges, <laughs> actually, and and most of that's around because we really haven't done that for red handfish mm. before. So um, I think there were sort of, you know, different sort of stages of um, or different challenges along the way. So even collecting the eggs, I mean, we'd never done that before and we didn't know whether we'd be able to hatch them successfully um, that all went really well. Then we had these, you know, three millimetre long fish that we then had to feed and look after and and that was quite difficult in itself. Um, and then I guess keeping them every sort of month was like we'd reached a new milestone, you know, we've got them past this vulnerable, vulnerable period and they're doing well and then we'd be on to the next bit. So it's been, a, the whole thing's been a real challenge and we really didn't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of information on their general biology and ecology, so getting them used to being back in the wild was also a challenge so we actually undertook some like some conditioning to familiarize them with their habitat and other species that they were going to be um that they're going to be in contact with mm-hmm. and that was sort of done to make sure or to try and i guess increase their, their um familiarization and, and likelihood of survival in the wild so the whole thing was a really quite a big challenge mm. So tell us about these red handfish. What makes them so special? So they are listed as critically endangered. They're only found here in southeastern Tasmania. Uh, we think there are only um, a couple of small populations that are left. They're quite fragmented, and, and we think that there are fewer than 100 adults left in the wild. And they've sort of um, their range has become... Uh, restricted or sort of fragmented in the past few years and and we've been monitoring one of the sites for the past 10 years and have noticed a decline in the number of handfish there but also a a decline in the habitat so they're quite um, susceptible to habitat loss and and degradation and so the threats to the species are actually mostly centred around threats on their habitat so things like pollution and increased sedimentation or urbanisation climate change obviously and we've also had an increase in urchins at at one of the sites and the urchins uh the urchins feed on the seaweed that the red handfish use for shelter and to to lay their eggs on Mm. so part of our part of our habitat management has been around tackling that issue as, as something that we can do um quite 
quite well. So we've we've been working with some local commercial fishers actually from the Tasmanian Commercial Divers Association who came in and removed several thousand urchins um, earlier this year to sort of try and bolster the the seaweed in the area. And um and that's had a really good we've had a really good res- result with that. And they're not the only really endangered handfish, are they? No. Um, so there are 14 species of handfish. There are three that are, that are critically endangered um, here in Tasmania. Uh, one of those we haven't seen for around about 15 years, the zebel's handfish, and then the other critically endangered is, is the spotted handfish. But on top of that, there are, I think, four species that are endangered and there are five species that are considered data deficient, so that, that actually means that we don't have enough information on them to, to be able to accurately list them or accurately assess them. And they're quite extraordinary fish. Like I read a, a, a description on the website for these endangered ones that said, imagine, imagine dipping a toad in some brightly coloured paint, telling it a sad story and forcing it to wear gloves two sizes too big, which is quite quite uh, beautiful, but they're really quite unique, these fish, aren't they? They are. They're really quite unique, and I think that's a really good description, especially if you've seen an image of one. I think that sort of captures it quite well. But, yeah, they are really unique and quite charismatic. They're just these small little marine fish with these oversized big um, fins that they use to walk around on rather than swimming like most fish do. So they are very unusual looking, yeah. It always strikes me that we talk so much about, um, you know, Australia's land animals, koalas and echidnas and how special they are. But it's, it's also true that our, um, our marine animals are just as unique, aren't they? I know, don't get me started on that. We have, <laughs> we've, got so many, we've got so many unique marine species and, and, you know, I mean, Australia's got quite, quite diverse species generally. But, yeah, I, I like that the, that the handfish, I guess, have been, we've been able to increase the profile of them because they're charismatic and unusual looking and, and people and, and kids especially really like, you know, are really engaged by that, I think. So I think that's been on our side. Mm. So can you tell us how you became involved with this handfish project? Yeah, I, I started diving um, with a volunteer program around 10 years ago and, and part of this, the monitoring that they were doing was looking at not specifically handfishes but looking at um, fish in general and habitat and so we were we were monitoring one of the sites and so I went out and, and did a survey with them and found my first first handfish mm. there and, and sort of kept going with that monitoring program for years but um, didn't focus really on handfish, just sort of got out when I could. And I helped, ended up helping with the spotted handfish recovery program for a little while, which would, again was just sort of surveys counting the number of spotted handfish that you find. And then I guess a couple of years ago, the National Handfish Recovery Team started to focus more on red handfish and, and the opportunity came up to work with them and I kind of jumped on that and helped launch the, the handfish conservation project and the, and the website that we have around that. Mm. So what can people do to help handfish? I think the most, like one of the most beneficial things that people can do is help continue to raise the profile of the species, you know, talking about it, looking at, you know, sharing our posts on social media, checking out our website and having conversations with, you know, colleagues and students and that that side of it I think is really important because we're just starting to kind of get that momentum going and we want people to know about it and we want people to care about it. So I think that's one of the best ways that people can help. Great. Thank you so much, Jemina, for joining us on Out of the Blue.
Cool, no worries. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Jamina Stewart-Smith from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science at UTAS and the CSIRO. And you can find out more about the Handfish Conservation Project, not just the red handfish, but the spotted and zebras handfish too, at handfish.org.au. And that's all we have time for today. To listen to this episode again, or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. And you can follow our Facebook page for updates. We'll be back with you next week. And in the meantime, stay well. Oh, <laughs>